I'm Krista Tippett. Elie Wiesel stands in the modern imagination as a towering moral figure. He's known for his work on behalf of the Jewish people and also other peoples across the world who face suffering and persecution. At the same time, Wiesel is often cited as an intellectual symbol of reasonable religious despair. In his memoir, Night, which has recently landed on bestseller lists five decades after its publication, Elie Wiesel declared that he lost his faith forever at Auschwitz. This hour, we explore what that declaration meant and how it has evolved in Elie Wiesel's life and his perspective on the world. This is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, The Tragedy of the Believer, an intimate conversation with Elie Wiesel. A Jew born in Romania, Elie Wiesel spent part of his childhood in the Nazi concentration camps of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. There, his parents and his young sister died. After the war, he made his way to Paris, where he became a journalist. In 1958, at the age of 29, he published his memoir, Night. Until that time, the vast horror of the Holocaust had barely been given public words. Wiesel has said that Night is the text on which all of his later writing is just commentary. But that body of commentary has grown to more than 40 books, nonfiction, fiction, plays, and poetry. The act of writing itself is part of the way Elie Wiesel navigates the religious territory of life. He noted that connection in 2005 at New York's 92nd Street Y, where he's given an annual series of lectures on Jewish thought for four decades. Literature and prayer have much in common. Both take everyday words and give them meaning. Both appeal to what is most personal and most transcendent in the human being. Both are rooted in the most obscure and mysterious zone of our being, nourished by anguish and fervor. The writer and the worshiper both draw from one source, the source where sound becomes melody, and melody turns into language, which becomes offering. Both are as open as an open wound. Both live tense and privileged moments. If one may assume that man could not live without literature, which is not so sure, one may equally affirm that neither could he survive without prayer. In recent years, Elie Wiesel has written a number of books with explicitly religious themes, drawing especially on the mystical Hasidic tradition. Wiesel's grandfather taught him to love this way of faith in early childhood before their world fell apart. Hasidism grew as a movement among European Jews in the 18th century, and it contains a playful and creative belief in the power of stories. Elie Wiesel likes to cite a passage of the Talmud that says, God created man because he loves stories. And as soon as we sat down to speak, even before we'd started to record, Elie Wiesel began to tell me a Hasidic legend. Our conversation began there. 
you know, I wanted to get to this later, but let's talk about how you have seemed to have come to or back to a love for these Hasidic traditions and, and tales and stories. Is that something that... Never no, stopped. It never stopped? No. You've written a great deal about it in the last sort of 20 years. I've written, yes. I've written some books. Mm-hmm. And it was you were really bred on that, weren't you, in your childhood? To me, Hasidism is not simply a theory or a doctrine, not even a way of life, because it was my childhood. I go back to it, and it remained with me because my childhood accompanies me to this day. It is the child in me who is a Hasid, and I listen to my to the child in me. Mm-hmm. But I do have an impression, and maybe this is wrong, that that that's more part of your life and your thought in the last few decades. Is that not true? Not not the Hasidic theory or the Hasidic doctrine or the Hasidic way of life changed. I, I, I changed. I changed, meaning not in depth but in volume. Uh, some people who, who, who read my first book, now they were convinced that I broke with fate and uh, broke with God. And, uh, not, not at all. I never divorced God. It's because I believed in God, that I was angry at God, and still am. But my fate uh, is tested, wounded, but it's here. So whatever I say, it's always from inside faith. Even when I speak the way occasionally I do, about the uh, problems I have, the questions I have. But in my tradition, as you know, it is permitted to question God, even mm-hmm. to take him to task. Quarreling with God. Yeah. yeah. We may. It's even more than that, you know. It is suing God. The, the expression is really suing God. That's the expression in the Hebrew? In Hebrew, yeah. Hmm. yeah. I sue God. We call it in, 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 in Hebrew, din Torah, meaning I bring him to a rabbinic tribunal. And the arguments are all the arguments I take from the Bible and from his words. I take God's words and say, since you said these words, how is it possible that other things or certain things have happened? Mm-hmm. It's because you take God so seriously that you ask. Sure. And mm-hmm. André Malraux was a very great French author. He wrote uh, La Condition Humaine, man's fa- great author, really. And he's the one who said the Jewish people were the only ones to take God's words seriously. Which means God's, God spoke to everybody. When did he write that? He wrote it in the 50s. So after the Holocaust. After the Holocaust, yeah. But he never spoke about, he never wrote, I didn't know him, but I read his work. He never wrote about the Holocaust. In those times, the great writers all avoided the subject. So as I was preparing to meet you, I looked through a number of your books again, some that I'd read before, some that I hadn't. And then I ended up going back to Night, which you can see has lost its cover a few years ago, <laughs> which you have also said was the primary text that that everything else you've written and said is commentary on this. And, you know, this question that you just addressed of your loss of faith, I think, comes especially from this famous passage. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke... Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. 
Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. And I know that's a passage that people often refer to when they think of your faith. And, and what I'd love to get into with you today is what happened after that? I mean, you've just given me a kind of an answer that, that it's because you, you were a person of such faith that you had to keep asking these questions. What happened after is in the book. I went on praying. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I have said these terrible words, and I stand by every word I said. But afterwards, I went on praying. I described the Rosh Hashanah, the Kaddish, everything. I went on praying. Yes. I remember once you also, you prayed for your safety or the safety of someone else. My father, always my father. Yes. At that time, it was my father. Yeah. But I've prayed, meaning I knew the prayers by heart. I come from a very religious background. So, of course, I knew these prayers by heart, but we didn't have prayer books. But I prayed. We all prayed. It's extraordinary. Later on, I wrote a play called The Trial of God. And there, really, I bring these problems, these conflicts, this crisis, to a different, a different direction, but it's always prayer. I love prayer. And did you pray even questioning whether there was an entity to, to hear that prayer? I never, I never doubted God's existence. Okay. I have problems with God's uh, apparent absence. You know, the, the old questions of theodicy. Mm-hmm. And they are topical even today. Elie Wiesel. Here's a reading from his play, The Trial of God. The play tells the story of Jewish survivors of a 16th century pogrom who imagine putting God on trial for the terrible things he allowed to happen to them. Speaking here is the character of Beresh, an embittered innkeeper who assumes the role of prosecutor. Men and women are being beaten, tortured, and killed. How can one not be afraid of God? True, they are victims of men, but the killers kill in God's name. Not all, true, but numbers are unimportant. Let one killer kill for God's glory, and God is guilty. Every person who suffers or causes suffering, every woman who is raped, every child who is tormented, implicates him. What, you need more? A hundred or a thousand? Listen. Either he is responsible or he is not. If he is, let's judge him. If he is not, let him stop judging us. When I read you looking for this idea of the, the nature of God, um, it seems to me, though, that you've done something 
quite profound. I mean, you, you are saying also that we have to take with absolute seriousness the idea that God is in everything, mm. uh, which is quite a dramatic statement with dramatic consequences. I, in saying that, I quote the mystical book, the Zohar, the Book of Splendor, mm-hmm. which is in Hebrew, there is no place void of him. And then, of course, the question, since it is so, since God is God and God is everywhere, what about evil? What about suffering? Is he there too? These are heartbreaking questions to those who believe. But then, again, the tragedy of the believer, I think, is deeper than the tragedy of the non-believer. Let's say some more of what you mean by that. I speak, look, after, after the war, after the experiences our generation went through, remember, I belong to a generation that has uh, not learned the way to live, but learned that there are a thousand ways of dying. And uh, as a result, we ask all the questions first. What happened to humanity? What happened to the human race? What happened to to human nature? What happened to democracy? What happened to our friends in the world and Roosevelt? and, and, And all these good questions. At the end of the questions, we cannot avoid saying, and where was he or where are you? Where was God? Right. Mm-hmm. Although I think the, the way that question is asked, let's, let's move to America in this time, in these last few years. Let's say September 11th and the way Americans woke up to violence. And that question, where was God, or a discussion of evil was something that was outside Right? The evil was something that was completely removed from the character of God, but you're actually saying that we can't do that. I, I'm not saying that God, God forbid, is, is, is evil. I'm asking a question. Since God is God, and God is everywhere, does it mean that he is also in evil? That he is in suffering, I accept. That he is with the sufferer, I accept. Again, that is part of the Jewish tradition too. That when God sent the people of Israel into exile, He accompanied them into exile. That's a mystical concept, which again, mm. tremendous beauty and anti-motion. But about evil, is, I, I have to swallow very hard before asking even the question. But one must ask the question. So 9-11, of course, look, like you, like everybody else, I was shocked, I was glued. I would not like television. <laughs> I like words, not pictures, but I was glued to television. Couldn't understand. But at that time, in truth, I didn't think theologically. I simply think humanly. What is it about 19 young men who decide to do what they have done? What is it about? And it, I studied the history of terrorism, the psychology of ter- I, I really studied because my second book, my first novel, After Night, is about actually about terrorism. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand it, and I said, what, my God, what is happening to this world? Elie Wiesel set his second book, Dawn, in immediate post-World War II Palestine, which was occupied by British forces. 
The story's protagonist, Elisha, is a young Jew just released from the concentration camp Buchenwald. In Paris, he is recruited by a Jewish terrorist movement to drive the British military out of Palestine and hasten the birth of a Jewish nation. In this passage, the movement's leader, Gad, describes his theology of terrorism. The commandment, Thou shalt not kill, was given from the summit of one of the mountains here in Palestine, and we were the only ones to obey it. But that's all over. We must be like everybody else. Murder will be not our profession, but our duty. In the days and weeks and months to come, you will have only one purpose, to kill those who have made us killers. We shall kill in order that once more we may be men. A passage from Elie Wiesel's novel, Dawn. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today we're in conversation with Elie Wiesel about his faith after the Holocaust and his understanding of the nature of God then and now. In his work, Wiesel often writes about the creation of the State of Israel as one of the great events of his lifetime. In a 1995 memoir, he described the wonder of surviving the Holocaust and visiting the Jewish state for the first time in this way. I belonged to the community of night, the kingdom of the dead, and henceforth I would also belong to the wondrous, exhilarating community of the eternal city of David. I asked Elie Wiesel how he experiences what is happening in Israel today. Israel, I read and I see the pictures in the papers. I read and I weep. And I don't weep usually. I read and I weep. My God. A city that was destined to be the city of peace. Look, the bloodshed, the cruelty, the suffering, the, the agony. And then you say, it must stop. My God, it must stop. Mm -hmm. So what else can we do? We must do something and anything we can to stop that absurd, irrational hatred. We must. So I want to ask you how you come at this question about where God is in, in the violence in Israel. I mean, if God is everywhere, can God at one and the same time be in an Israeli's love for that land and every Jew's love for that land and also in these acts of violence? And a suicide bomber, right? What, is, what makes it worse is those who kill, kill, so to speak, in the name of God. Right. They didn't ask God. God didn't tell them to kill, but they say we do it in the name of God. Oh, I don't like to, to say negative things about other people, but really all these people who say that they are martyrs, we Jews and Christians too, we know something about martyrdom. A martyr is someone who is ready to die for his or her faith, not to kill for his or her faith. And there it's a perversion of every concept of faith, what they are doing to kill children. Why? So rather than here to turn to God, I'd rather turn to those who invoke his name in vain. 
just to kill and kill and kill and then be killed. A cult of death. For them, death is God. Mm-hmm. So for you, the results of those actions, um, some indication of, of an absence of God? We have a, a certain concept it's from the Bible, actually. We call it the eclipse of God. The, uh, that God, at times, is hiding his face. Uh, we have it often, whenever something terrible happens, it's not because one, God wanted it, because God didn't want to see it. Hmm. So it's not the absence. It is the turning his face away. Now, what is a tragedy? God's turning the face away, and therefore comes a tragedy, or the other way around. First, the tragedy. And God doesn't want to see it, so it turns away. But when people do terrible things to one another, first we must ask them, why are you doing it? And then we may, at the end, if we have the answer, say, and God, why do you allow these things to happen? Okay. Otherwise, it's too easy, really, to say, God, why didn't you intervene? Come on. God gives us a world which he wanted, not perfect, but beautiful. And what are we doing to it? Elie Wiesel. Here's a portion of an essay in the form of an open letter to a young Palestinian, which he published in 1978. It is the human aspect of your problem that I find most painful. Its dialectical aspect leaves me indifferent. Its ethical side troubles me. I am irritated by your threats but overwhelmed by your suffering. I am more sensitive to that than you imagine. The people of my generation cannot be otherwise. They have seen too many men tortured, uprooted, to turn away from other people's grief. It concerns us and it affects us. Your behavior is conditioned by Arab suffering and mine by Jewish suffering. These two sufferings should unite us, but instead they divide us. I could write this letter today. Mm-hmm. It is so topical. Yeah. What I say in truth, I would feel all the sympathy in the world for the young Palestinians who want to live in peace and to have a state. And peace, I, I must almost quote myself, is not something, a gift that God is giving us. It's a gift that we give to each other. So if they would stop terrorism, I would do whatever I can to help them. But I cannot help terrorists. If there is something which I oppose with all my heart, it is this terrorism rooted in fanaticism. We are dealing now in the Middle East, we are dealing with a situation in which everything, everything goes bad has happened there. It's politics, it's economy, it's uh, poverty, it's despair, it's psychology, psychiatry and science, everything there. It's a combination and of course religion. So all these together. But it could have worked. I was in Washington on September 13th 
1993, and I was in the White House. And I watched Isaac Rabin, who was a very close friend of mine, and Arafat shake hands. And that day was a blessing. I saw it as a day of blessings. I felt, well, it's finished. Now we can start building hope. Look where we are. Does that make you despair? Often, but I have no right to. If I am alone, I would despair. But there are young people in the world, and I don't think that I have I survived to give them despair. Here's an excerpt from Elie Wiesel's Nobel Lecture of December 11, 1986, read by Rabbi Harold Schulweis. And here we come back to memory. We must remember the suffering of my people as we must remember that of the Ethiopians, the Cambodians, the boat people, Palestinians, the Mesquite Indians, the Argentinian desaparecidos, the list seems endless. Let us remember Job, who having lost everything, his children, his friends, his possessions, and even his argument with God, still found the strength to begin again, to rebuild his life. Job was determined not to repudiate the creation, however imperfect, that God had entrusted to him. Job, our ancestor, Job, our contemporary. His ordeal concerns all humanity. Did he ever lose his faith? If so, he rediscovered it within his rebellion. He demonstrated that faith is essential to rebellion and that hope is possible beyond despair. The source of his hope was memory as it must be ours. Because I remember, I despair. Because I remember, I have the duty to reject despair. I remember the killers. I remember the victims. Even as I struggle to invent a thousand and one reasons to hope. Mankind must remember that peace is not God's gift to his creatures. It is our gift to each other. From Elie Wiesel's 1986 Nobel Lecture, this is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, more conversation with Elie Wiesel. We'll hear his thoughts on the meaning of Jerusalem, on forgiveness and prayer. At speakingoffaith.org, learn more about the readings, references, and music you've just heard. Listen to this program again. Download an MP3 to your desktop or subscribe to our free weekly podcast. Listen when you want, wherever you want. All this and more at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. 
Today, the tragedy of the believer, an intimate conversation about religious life beyond the Holocaust with Elie Wiesel. He's received the Congressional Medal of Honor and the Nobel Peace Prize. He's renowned for his efforts on behalf of the Jewish people and also other peoples across the world who face suffering and persecution. In recent months, Elie Wiesel has spoken out against human rights abuses in Sudan, and he has joined global leaders in urging the U.S. to abolish torture without exceptions. We're speaking now about his love for Israel and his grief that a peace that seemed so close in his lifetime has erupted into new cycles of conflict and bloodshed. And you know, when people in this country watch that conflict, they watch the Israelis seem to be, be as much a part of that, that cycle of violence as the Palestinians. And I don't know, how do you, how do you respond to, to that? Look, I am a Jew. With my past and with my upbringing, I have, of course, a passion, a love for, for Israel, the people of Israel and Israel. But it's not limited. When I got the Nobel Prize, I said it in my speech that I said, I hope you don't give it to me for the wrong reasons. My priorities are Jewish priorities, Jewish fears, Jewish hopes, Jewish struggles, but they are not exclusive. That's why I tried to be involved in every cause possible dealing with human rights. But you cannot give in to terror. Mm-hmm. No country can give in to terror. Right. You cannot, you must not. You betray your, your, the mission that, that, that has been entrusted onto you by, by those who voted you into power. You have no right to do that. So how can I therefore say that I, 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 I cannot? I would say, yes, I support. I believe, yes, there should be a Palestinian state, absolutely. But not instead of Israel, but alongside Israel. And then I think... Um one looks at the at the state in which the Palestinians live, and I'm, it seems to me that that Jews in Israel live with these these texts which say different things, which are hard to bring together sometimes. I mean the the commitment to the land, and then also the commandment to care for the widow and the orphan, and right. I mean, <laughs> I can quote to you beautiful things naturally. Mm. What we say about slavery, for instance. One of the most beautiful things about our attitude to slaves, it was written 3,500 years ago, after all. After the Ten Commandments, the first law, the first after the Ten Commandments, is you shall have no slaves. Not only don't be slaves, you cannot own slaves. And then, later on, if a slave escapes... You cannot give him to, back to its owner. But the, the attitude, and, and we are talking about the people that a few years earlier have been slaves in Egypt. So there are great things, actually. Mm. And of course, the most important one of all, to me, by the way, is thou shall not stand idly by. Always. So, yes, when I see what's happening to the, to the Palestinians, it hurts. Naturally, it hurts. I feel that it's almost impossible for Americans to really have a sense, maybe not for American Jews, but for other Americans to have a sense of the spiritual connection to that land. And you write a lot about how you experienced Israel growing as a state, 
coming out of your experience of the Holocaust. I mean, would you just describe what your bond is to that place, what it has to do with your soul as a Jew? Can you put that into words? I wrote about it a lot because I prayed a lot. My first prayer was about Jerusalem. The first lullaby my mother used to sing me was about Jerusalem. I knew Jerusalem, the word Jerusalem, before I knew the name of my hometown. I know the streets of Jerusalem, the houses of Jerusalem, before I was there. Because somehow Jerusalem was the, the uh, center of our dreams, the center of our aspirations, the center of our hope. It's Jerusalem, the city of peace. The first mayor was David, King David of, of Jerusalem. And when I came to Jerusalem for the first time, I had a feeling it wasn't the first time. I had been there before. And nevertheless, each time I go to Jerusalem, I have the feeling it's the first time. It's the only city in the world that I feel that way. I wrote, after the Six-Day War, I wrote a novel called The Beggar in Jerusalem, because I felt we all come there as beggars, really, to receive. We want to receive, and we received a lot. And all I used to do then, it was immediately after the liberation of the old city, I would go there, and I wrote my novel with my lips. In the evening, I would go to the hotel and write down what I had written with my lips. And then at that time, of course, it was so special. At the same time, I write in my novel then, that I would, as I walked in the old city, and I saw Arab children. And because they realized that I was Jewish simply because I was at the wall praying or so, I inspired fear in them. And that hurt me more than I can say, that I should inspire fear in children. Well, what else can one do today but tell the story and hope that the story itself will become a prayer? Elie Wiesel. This is a passage from his 1970 novel, A Beggar in Jerusalem. Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav, the storyteller of Hasidism, liked to say that no matter where he walked, his steps turned toward Jerusalem. As for me, I discovered it in the sacred word. Without taking a single step, I saw it then as I see it now. Here is the valley of Jehoshaphat where one day the nations will be judged. The Mount of Olives, where one day death will be vanquished. The citadel, the fortress of David, with its small turrets and golden domes where suns shatter and disappear. The gate of mercy, heavily bolted. Let anyone other than the Messiah try to pass, and the earth will shake to its foundations. And higher than the surrounding mountains of Moab and Judea, here is Mount Moriah, which since the beginning of time has lured man in quest of faith and sacrifice. It was here that he first opened his eyes and saw the world 
that henceforth he would share with death. It was here that, maddened by loneliness, he began speaking to his Creator and then to himself. It was here that his two sons, our forefathers, discovered that which links innocence to murder and fervor to malediction. It was here that the first believer erected an altar on which to make an offering of both his past and his future. It was here, with the building of the temple, that man proved himself worthy of sanctifying space as God had sanctified time. From A Beggar in Jerusalem by Elie Wiesel, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, conversation with Elie Wiesel on what he calls the tragedy of the believer. In, in recent years, we've had an example of a country, South Africa, in which there was an evil and horrible regime. But they had this process of truth and reconciliation, of telling the story, telling their collective story, and trying, I think, to, to live out of that experience differently as a, as a culture. Now, I spent some years in Germany as a journalist, and I couldn't help but wonder, as I watched what was happening in South Africa, how it might have been different if there had been some process like that. I wonder if you as someone who experienced those camps and the dark side of that, have, had, have reflected on something like that? Or, or, or what is your relationship to Germany now, is another question. First, South Africa. Okay. I went to South Africa in 1975, going around, literally from town to town, fighting apartheid. Why? Because I felt we have no right not to interfere, not to intervene. Hmm. Okay. We humiliate an entire people because of their race, right? Then Mandela came, the first trip he took actually, when he left jail, to a conference I organized in Oslo, Anatomy of Hate. Hmm. And I organized people from all over the world, both sides. So Mandela came and I invited a minister of the apartheid government. But I checked, he didn't have blood on his hands. At one point, I had the heads of state and Nobel laureates. At one point, the young minister of the apartheid government turned to Mandela and said, Nelson, I grew up in apartheid. My dream now is to attend its funeral. Mm. And it was so beautiful that I put them together, and that was the beginning of the end of apartheid. <laughs> That's how it began. <laughs> Germany, you were there when I was there once visiting. Yes. I'm asked occasionally, you know, do you forgive? And who am I to forgive? I'm not God. I don't believe in collective guilt. I met you there. We talked about it. It was January 20th, 1985. Yeah. Now, I have a recollection. It was one of the first first time you've been, first in. Time you've been in Berlin. Yeah. 
you met with a group of young Germans, and I have never forgotten what you said when you came out. I was there with the other New York Times correspondent, and you said, I had never before considered that it could be as painful to be the children of those who ran the camps as to be the child of those who died in them. Because I have students from Germany, and you cannot imagine the affection I have for them, mm-hmm. the empathy I have for them. I want to help them. They need help. One of them said to me, even in Berlin then, said, you know, I just discovered a few weeks ago that he's, he's, he discovered that his father was an SS uh, officer. He said, what should I do? Do you know what Hitler has done? He destroyed so many lives that had not been born yet. His people. How did you respond to that student? Well, you can imagine, I took him aside and we spoke and we spoke and we spoke and I simply said, look, he's your father. Uh, talk first, first let him talk to you and you talk to him. And uh, then you decide what to do. I understand you, absolutely, I understand you. I went back to Berlin for the last time, if you last, the year 2000, January 27, the Bundestag, which is the parliament, came to Berlin and for the first time they had a session, the parliament in the Reichstag in mm-hmm. Berlin, and they invited me to speak. And I came, 27th of January, at the end of my speech, I turned to the president who was there, and the, the entire government and diplomatic corps, I said, Mr. President, uh, why not ask the Jewish people for forgiveness? I'm not sure the Jewish people can accept, but why not ask? A week later, he went to Israel, to Jerusalem. He went to the parliament, and he asked for forgiveness. That trip was the result of your speech. I think so, yeah. So I felt good. Is forgiveness a big enough word or a good enough word for this? No, I cannot. You forgive. said you can't forgive. I mean, what? So if you can't forgive, what can you do? What What is the the endeavor? The the holy endeavor. I don't see. This is the this is the aim. The aim is to first of all to tell the truth, and to to sensitize other people not to do the same thing. We are not here to forgive. We are the Jewish in the Jewish faith. On the eve of Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year, and we plead with God for forgiveness, and God forgives, I hope. <laughs> but one thing, He does not forgive the evil I have done to other fellow human beings. Only they can forgive. If I do something bad to you, I cannot ask God to forgive me. You must forgive me. That's much harder, much more exacting. <laughs> I. I wondered if I could ask you to read a prayer. Is it here? Yeah. This is a prayer that I found in your book, One Generation After. You talked a lot in night, and we talked about this already, about struggling with prayer. 
mm-hmm. to, to be able to pray or not or what it meant. And I think this was a prayer that you wrote in a I diary. Wrote, yeah, yeah. And I wondered if you would read that to me and just talk to me then. We, we have to finish, but about how you began to pray again and how you pray differently now because of the life you've lived. I no longer asked you for either happiness or paradise. All I ask of you is to listen and let me be aware and worthy of your listening. I no longer ask you to resolve my questions, only to receive them and make them part of you. I no longer ask you for either rest or wisdom. I only ask you not to close me to gratitude, be it of the most trivial kind or to surprise and friendship. Love, love is not yours to give. As for my enemies, I do not ask you to punish them or even to enlighten them. I only ask you not to lend them your mask and your powers. If you must relinquish one or the other, give them your powers, but not your countenance. They are modest, my prayers, and humble. I ask you what I might ask a stranger met by chance at twilight in a barren land. I ask you, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to enable me to pronounce these words without betraying the child that transmitted them to me. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, enable me to forgive you and enable the child I once was to forgive me too. I no longer ask you for the life of the child, not even for his faith. I only implore you to listen to him and act in such a way that you and I can listen to him together. to ask you if in this journey from from being a person who felt that his or who would say that your faith was was gone forever were there any dramatic moments or turning points where you couldn't make that statement anymore I couldn't make it 10 minutes later at that moment I made it and because it was there I had to make it but as I said earlier, but then I went back to prayer. Again, remember that what is prayer? You take words, everyday words, and all of a sudden they became holy. Why? Because there is something that separates one word from another. And then you try to fill the vacuum with what? With whom? With what memory? With what aspiration? So, when words bring you closer to the prisoner in his cell, to the patient who is dying on his bed alone, to the starving child, then it's a prayer. All right. 
Elie Wiesel, thank you so much. Elie Wiesel's most recent book is a novel, The Time of the Uprooted. The latest edition of Night is a new translation from the original French by his wife, Marion. At speakingoffaith.org, read the complete text of the prayer recited by Elie Wiesel. Listen to this program again and hear others in our archives. Download an MP3 to your desktop or subscribe to our podcast. And sign up for our email newsletter, which brings my journal on each week's topic straight to your desktop. That's speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck and Jody Abramson and editor Ken Hom. Our web producer is Trent Gillis. Special thanks this week to Rabbi Harold Schulweis, the senior rabbi at Valley Beth Shalom in Encino, California, for the readings in this program. Thanks also to New York's 92nd Street Y for the audio of Elie Wiesel's 2005 lecture. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. The executive producer is Bill Busenberg. And I'm Krista Tippett.